they weren't there to see God write it. So the argument is dumb in and of itself because you weren't there to see God write it anyway. So you got to have faith that God wrote it in the same way you have to have faith that it's the word of God because man wrote it. But I used the go-to verse for the Bible is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Most popular verse used to describe the Bible. Here's what that verse says. Many of you are familiar with it. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the go-to verse for many people when defending the authority of the Bible and that it was inspired by the Spirit. And we get into it. What do you mean by inspired by God? And you explain those things. I brought up an article from Answers in Genesis where they gave some pushback to this idea that man wrote the Bible, so it's not the word of God. It's full of errors and things like that. Here's some of their pushback. They said this. Well, Homer in the Odyssey is much older, and people don't debate who wrote that. In other words, you accept the authorship from books that don't have the same significance as the Bible, no one's debating who wrote those things. They also said that the original manuscripts, the Bible makes no mistakes in error, but we do have people who have translated the Bible over time have made some scribal errors. But nothing that changes or shapes the story of the Bible. In fact, there are a few narratives in the Bible that your Bible would say, this is not found in the original manuscripts. So like John 8, the adulterous woman, that's not found in any of the manuscripts that have John 8. Mark 9 through 20 is not found in any of the original manuscripts. So there's a sense in which someone potentially added that after, later in, as the Bible was being translated, right? They use that. They use that Jesus believed the Old Testament was the word of God quoting Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. Luke 24 says he opened their hearts to see and believe from the, 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 the books of the law and Moses and all the prophets, right, that they were prophesying about him. They said that Jesus believed that, so we should believe it. They said the apostles thought they were proclaiming the word of God. And that's sort of their defenses, classical defenses. I stand by everything I said in that message, and I agree with them on these things. But today I'm going to offer a different perspective on what the Bible is, not based on these arguments externally, but what God is doing in the Bible specifically. I'm going to add to this truth, and I'm not going to use 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, or Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, the Bible is the word of God, living and active, able to divide and those are great passages. For the supernatural understanding of what the Bible is, I'm going to use Colossians 2. And let me tell you why, because there's another sentiment that has been going around for a while, but that is really popular right now in pop culture and leading many Christians astray. The sentiment stems from a book published in 1875 by Kelsey Graves entitled The World's 16 Crucified Saviors 
Christianity before Christ. And here's what he says in the introduction, talking to professing Christians. Here's what he says. Friends, <laughs> friends, and brethren, teachers of the Christian faith, will you believe us when we tell you the divine claims of your religion are all gone, all swept away by the logic of history and nullified by the de demonstrations of science? The recently opened fountains of historic law, many of whose potent facts will be fine, interspread through the pages of this work, sweep away the last inch of ground on which can be predicated the least show for either the divine origin or the Christian religion or the divinity of Christ, Jesus Christ. Paraphrase. What I'm getting ready to present in this book will show you that the foundations of Christianity are not true. That's what he's saying. And then he ends with this in the, in the introduction. He says this, for these facts demonstrate beyond all cavilling criticism and with a logical force which can leave not the vestige of a doubt upon any unbiased mind that all its doctrines, the Bible, are an outgrowth from older heathen systems. Several systems of religion essentially the same in character and spirit as that religion now known as Christianity. So here's this point in paraphrasing. Christianity is a fake religion because it borrows narratives from other Mesopotamian religion stories. In essence, the Bible is not the first time we've heard these stories. We have gods that were virgin born, that resurrected from the dead, the Jews just took these stories, changed the names, and created a fake religion. That's the argument. So many of you have heard of stuff like Mithras. Virgin born, they say. Here's his virgin birth story. He jumped out of a rock next to a riverbank with a dagger in one hand and a torch in the other. And with the dagger, he sliced open the mighty bull where most of these ancient Near Eastern religions would say creation came from. He slices the neck of this bull and then creation comes out and then he ascends up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Sounds a lot like Jesus. You've heard of Horus and Adonis and Osiris. They use these terms, virgin birth, resurrection, as if they're communicating the same thing that the Bible is. They don't stop to tell you that they combine different stories. They pick and choose certain details to make it seem like it's the same thing and that none of those ancient Near Eastern stories actually happen in real time like Jesus who came in real historical time, who did real historical things among real historical people. So I'm gonna answer two questions today and ask a couple of others that we'll answer along the way. Here's the first question. Since the Bible isn't the first narrative to explain the creation account and the participation of divine beings in the world, is it false? 
because it's not first, is it false? The second question, did Israel borrow from earlier stories of the gods and the religions of other nations to craft their story? Those are the two questions we're going to ask. And in so doing that, I intend to explain what the Bible is from a supernatural point of view. So it's the word of God in both. But it's something a little deeper from a supernatural perspective. Let's start with, since the Bible isn't the first to narrative to explain the creation and participation of divine beings in the world, is it false? Or it is false, is what they would say. You see this bad boy, this big Harry Potter book of spells looking thing I got right here? Open this up and cast something on y'all. Sorcerer Supreme over here. This is written by a theologian named James Usher. Let me tell you what this is. This is a believer who in around 1620-something was so devout in his study that he was able to, for many people in a very credible way, go back and trace exactly the dates and times of when the world began and when events happened. And this whole book is basically his detailing of events. This guy was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1581. He went to Trinity College at age 13, graduated with a BA at 15, received his master's at 18, and was appointed proctor of the college. So this dude is like the first Doogie Howser, for those of you that know the reference. He was ordained as a deacon and priest at the age of 20 in the Anglican Church and became professor of divinity at Dublin at age 26. This dude's a sharp dude. I could read more, but we're not talking about him today. So this is his book, and here's what he says. Here's, I'm going to give you the dates, because I'm answering the question, since Christianity didn't present, the Jews didn't present the first narrative, is it false? So here's how he chronicles the world. 4004 BC was the creation of the world. So that was when, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned. God shows up and says in Genesis 3.15, which we know, I will put enmity, talking to the serpent, talking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I said at the beginning of this series that this statement, saying it to the devil, every being heard this. All the divine beings were aware of this and heard this statement. And from this moment on, all the divine beings that rebelled against God are trying to figure out who this he is, so they can thwart whatever he intends to do. 37, 3874, 30 years later, Seth is born after Abel, Abel is killed. Here's what Genesis 4, 25 and 26 tells us. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To, to Seth also, a son was born, and he called his name Enos. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's a very important phrase for a couple of reasons, one of which we'll talk about right now. 
As far as we know, there are no other gods to be called on at this point in time. So at the beginning of human history, people are calling on the name of the Lord. So as early as 3874 BC, God could have started recording, having people write down what it means to believe in him, how to worship him and so forth. We know that that language was going out because Abel, who was murdered, honored the Lord. He understood that giving to the Lord meant something that Cain did not. There are no other gods to be called upon. So as this far back, people are calling upon the name of the Lord. Fast forward almost a thousand years. Noah was born in 2948. 600 years later, in 2349, Noah built the ark because of the flood. Catastrophic event. When we get to that, it's going to be crazy. Then you get in 2242, the Tower of Babel happens. Another supernatural story that many of us don't realize because as we read it, they're just building a tower to heaven. There is much more going on in that story. That's Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Genesis 12, 1922 BC, 320 years later from Genesis, so from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12, one chapter to us, 320 years in human history. God calls Abraham. So 12 generations of people existed, having developed philosophies, which are religions, ways to understand the world, narratives and stories for 320 years before God even decides, all right, it's time to, to pursue a new people. I'm going to call this guy Abraham and from him build a nation of people. And this people will be specific, but they will affect the whole world. So that there, when he tells Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky if you can count them. He waits till then. 430 years later is when Israel was taken out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And when God had Moses come down from Mount Sinai with two stone tablets that had the first recorded word of God. That's 751 years have passed before God said, okay, now it's time for me to weigh in. 751 years before God had anything recorded from him. That's 751 years of other religions, evil cosmic powers against God have crafted stories, religions, everything to make people believe this is the, we're the true God. Now remember, they were there for all of these things. So they have knowledge of what happened. They're deceiving people into what happened but all of them, if you look at the Mesopotamian accounts, they all have creation narratives. They all have flood narratives. 
All these ancient religions all have the same narratives, but they put their narratives first because God didn't even record his word for 750 years after these other cultures were created. And that's 2,513 years from Genesis 3.15 when he said, this woman's going to give birth to a seed and he is going to crush you for what you've done. 2,500 years have passed since that scene. Why did God wait so long to explain what really happened? Why did he let all these other stories come out before his? I mean, they were calling on the name of the Lord in 3874 at the end of Genesis 4. He could have had them write stuff down, write all these things down and record how to give them sacrifices and worship and all these things, explaining what does calling on the name of the Lord mean and give instructions of how you obey God. There's a reason in Genesis 6 where God looked down and said, man, these people are all evil. Why didn't he have written down, this is how you honor me? They were calling on the name of the Lord, it says. So they weren't calling on any God, but the God who created all things. Why did he let these other stories have 751 years of a head start before he said, okay, Moses, write this down, and then I'm going to explain to you how they should obey me and live for me, and then you're going to write what's called the Pentateuch, the Tanakh, which is the first five books of the Bible. Why did he do that? Before we get to that, let's look at the other second question. This is the other second, the second question. Here's that question. Did Israel borrow from earlier stories of the other gods that they were surrounded by? Did they take their stories and incorporate them into their story and create a new religion? Did they borrow from these other religious accounts? Yes and no. First, let's start with yes. We know that they were heavily influenced. We know that in Exodus 32 in the golden calf story, in verse 4, Remember, after they make the golden calf, here's what it says. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You notice they said, these are your gods, plural, Elohim. Well, they had been in captivity with Egypt for 400 years. So they were essentially Egyptians. We only know that they even knew who the God of Israel was because in Exodus 4, when Moses came and said to God of Israel, it said the elders of Israel rejoiced. So they had some knowledge of him, but they were functional Egyptians. So even though that same God brought them out of Egypt through a cloud and, and, and during the day and, and, and fire at night, they said, let's make a golden calf here are your gods, plural. The way they understood religion, philosophy, was a pantheon of different gods for different purposes. That's how they understood it. They were influenced. 
And because of their disobedience, they had to stay in the wilderness longer than expected and so forth. They had a pluralistic view of God. Now, I can't, well, I am going to prove this, but I'm going to say this for right now. I'm not going to prove what I'm about to say right now, but I will prove this in the storyline of the Bible. I think the reason why the, the Jews never even understood what we call the Trinity is because they were so pluralistic in their view, they wouldn't have been able to understand one God, right? One essence, three different persons. They would have been saying, well, we worship Yahweh, well, we worship Jesus, well, we worship the Holy Spirit. The same thing that Paul was condemning in the Corinthians. I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollo, some with Cephas, some with Jesus. They weren't even mature enough to handle it, so it was veiled in the Old Testament. It's not until you really get to Daniel 7 where they have to be like, wait a minute, who, who is this son of man on a cloud in front of the Ancient of Days that's basically treated the same? They were heavily influenced. We see this in 2 Kings 21. King Manasseh, listen to this. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hez Hezbollah. I'm sorry, Hezbollah, if I got your name wrong, I'm sorry. We don't use names like that today. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So here he's imitating the same things. Verse 3, for he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Listen, he worshipped all the hosts of heaven. They understood that there are gods, Elohim, and he said, let's worship all of them. Verse 5. Well, verse 4, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the spirit of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So here you see they were heavily influenced. They're worshiping these other gods. Sometimes along with Yahweh, sometimes instead of Yahweh. They're heavily influenced. We know in 1 Kings, Solomon did this, right? 1 Kings 11. He said, now, this is David's son. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. That man had all preferences. <laughs> What's his type? All of them. Females, the species is his type. It said, from nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines. And his wives turned away from his heart, turned away his heart. I don't know what Solomon was thinking. 
So here you have the kings of the people of Israel who teach the people how to honor God. Whatever the kings do, the people are subject to him and follow. So when the king is evil, then people become evil and follow what he does. When he worships other gods, they worship other gods. So you have Israel taken into captivity in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. This is what Isaiah is talking about. You have Judah, the southern kingdom, taken into captivity between 605 and 586 B.C. This is what the book of Daniel was about. Babylonians came, destroyed the temple, Nebuchadnezzar, and they're gone. They have been immersed into other worldviews and religions as a punishment for disobeying God. Then the Jews, because of King Cyrus in 538, began to come back. That's the book of Ezra. There's three waves of Jews. Ezra takes the first two, and then 444 B.C., Nehemiah takes the third wave of people back, and they start rebuilding the temple. And that's why if you hear this term with theologians called Second Temple Judaism, it's because Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple. And so they rebuilt it later on, but it was nothing like what Solomon built. When Paul starts writing theology, it's 500 years later. He writes Colossians in 60 AD. That's 4,064 years before, since Genesis 3.15. And mind you, when Paul's writing, he's now allowing the writing are for everyone, not just the Jews. So 4,060 years before God specifically saves and starts addressing non-Jewish people, which they were called the Gentiles. Why did he do that? Was Israel affected by the other religions? Of course. Did they borrow Certain narratives? Sort of. So there is a yes to that question, but there's also a no. The problem with the idea that Israel borrowed from other cultures to make up their own story, which we call the Bible, the Old Testament, is that there is a uniqueness to Yahweh from the different gods of these other religions. All these gods, most of them are sexual. They have sex with their daughters. They swallow people's hearts and bring them back to life. If you really look at the original sources of these stories, you are, this is like the epitome of cherry picking to try to say, hey, it's the same as Jesus. Not really, though. Another problem is that when they say they borrowed from other cultures, well, who is they? The Bible wasn't a group project, like, oh, let's get about 150 people in here, and what do y'all think we should do? What, what do you think is first? Okay, I like that, and I don't put that in there. Okay, yeah, let's do that. And we just, hey, write that down, man. It, 
No, it was written usually by one individual. It wasn't written by a bunch of people that are, okay, what stories do we like and don't like? So when you say, the, is the Jews borrowed from, what Jews are you talking about? Isaiah said, I'm the only one writing this. Jeremiah's writing this. It ain't Jeremiah and his 300 people behind him. They're not written by a bunch of people. They're written specifically. So here's where we come in, and here's our problem with the Bible. The Jews of the ancient Near East had a different theological access than we do. So here's what we have. And when I say we, I mean just the average Christian. Obviously, we have resources. We can look at almost anything they can at this point. But the average Christian basically has three main lenses in which we view the Bible, which we think truth is. Old Testament, New Testament, and then developed theology throughout church history. That's the main way we process the Bible. So Old Testament, New Testament, and all of that. The ancient Near East Jews, that's not what they had. So here's what they were working with. The Old Testament, for sure, right? The same Old Testament that we have is the one in the Judaism Bible, almost verbatim. So they had that, but they also had access and knowledge to books that we don't have. There were books today we don't have. So here's another example, 1 Kings 15, 7. Here's what it says. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? When's the last time you read a verse from that? We can't find that material, but they had that material. They understood there are other writings that we have access to that help us understand and process our view of God to help us process our understanding of what's happening. It wasn't just the Old Testament that we have. Numbers 21.14. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahab and Sufa, Supha, I'm sorry, bro, if I'm getting your name, and the valleys of the Arnon, right? Like, what is the book of the wars of the Lord? They had knowledge of this. Joshua 10, 13, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. And he said, is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set apart for a whole day. They're writing this and then saying this other book, this valid book is justifying the truth of what we're saying and what we call the word of God. The book of Jassar is not considered the word of God from for our perspective, but they had that in their mind. The ancient Near Eastern Jews didn't just have Old Testament, New Testament. There was no church history to develop theology. They had books that we didn't have. The other thing they had was the Apocrypha and Pseudopigrapha. These are books that are in the Catholic Bible and in other Eastern Orthodox Bible books like the Book of Maccabees. You got books like First Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, the Book of Tobit, the Generations of Adam and Eve, the Martyrdom of Isaiah, 
they had knowledge of all of this material. And when they wrote scripture in the New Testament, they had knowledge of all of these things around them. And there are times, which we're going to see in the storyline, they reference those things a lot. Just like these, book of such and such. And they also had the theology of the captive nations. They understood what the, because they lived among them for hundreds of years. They understood what the Babylonians thought. Back then, everything was about, in our, in our, in our world right now, we have, we're in America, you have different continents with different countries, and everyone kind of is an authority of their own thing. So China's doing what they do, and we kind of don't mess with them, and they kind of don't, behind the scenes, we don't really like each other. But in reality, they do what they do. But in this day, it was major world religions taking over the world. So it was Alexander the Great and Greek, Greek philosophy ushers into the world. And then the Romans come after them and take over them. So now the Romans rule the world. So when Jesus is born, it's a Greco-Roman world. The influence and the language of Greek philosophy and all of that stuff is strong and exists. But now you have Roman authority, Roman philosophy, Roman culture. And then you have Jesus coming in the midst of a Greco-Roman world. And that's why the Bible is translated in Greek often. And the Old Testament, the Septuagint is translated in Greek. And in Hebrew, it's the Masoretic text. They didn't have, the ancient Near East didn't have social media to distract them. What they were drawn to was philosophy, ideas. Who has a better explanation of the world? Let's hear something we haven't heard before. When they wrote scripture, particularly those in the New Testament, but in the Old, they understood that they were writing against an evil Elohim at work in the world. And they often referenced their works that were obvious to them, but not to us. We read these terms and think, I have no idea what that means. If we're being honest, many of us, and we talk, I was talking to somebody about this before church, we just view the Old Testament as that was then, this is now. There's a reason why they used to have these little Bibles where they give out Psalms and Proverbs and then New Testament. <laughs> There's a reason why you probably haven't read Zephaniah ever or in, since the last time you did have read through the Bible in a year. Because it has no relevance to you because we think of things in terms of how does this affect me? We have Janet Jackson syndrome. What have you done for me lately? What does this mean to me? That's how we process the Bible. But they knew there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. So when they wrote the Bible, they wrote it understanding all these things are happening. So when Paul writes Colossians 2, the passage that is, to me, the go-to passage for the supernatural storyline, here's what he says, beginning in verse 8. He says this, See to it that no one takes you captive, by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. 
In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He dismissed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a, a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are shadows. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belong to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. They're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. The reason why I chose this passage is because Paul is specifically writing against the elemental spirits of the world and their religious impact in the world. Now, here's what we should know. The word philosophy is used in a broader way than we use it today. We think of philosophy as a distinct sort of uh, treatment, something like a, a almost like a, a scientific study. We say philosophy, oh, okay, we have categories in our mind of what that means. But to them, philosophy was just a way to understand the world. So philosophies for them included religion. They would have called what we call religions philosophy. Because what is a religion? It just tells you about the world, who the, who the divine being is that created the world, and what you should do and what's happening. It's a, it's a philosophy. We have science, religion, politics, philosophy. That would have been the same thing to them. Politics would have been a little different, but it's still a philosophy. Philosophy would have been whatever God governs your life, your worldview. So when Paul says this in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Look at, listen to what he calls it. He says, take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So he says, these things are not true. They're deceitful. Now, deceit and lie are two different things. Deceit is more hidden. A lie is more blatant. So he says, empty deceit. Like these things look like. But they're deceiving you. And then he says, why? Because they're based on human tradition. They have no eternal value. They're just laws based on human tradition. And then he calls them, they're according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, this could also be translated the basic principles of the world. But what he's getting at is there are supernatural beings that are giving people basic principles of life that are essentially human tradition. And he's saying, don't fall for that. We see this all the time in our day. Well, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a... What, well, there's a lot of spirits out there, so what does that mean? There's a lot of evil spirits out there. So you're right. You are a spiritual person. Just what spirit is that? 
He said, these are all rivaling. That's why he says, and not according to Christ. These things rival Christ. That's the warning. Don't give in to these religions that are based on human tradition. And when Paul says that, he knows all the stories of Greek mythology. He knows all of these things. And he's like, man, these things are deceitful. And he says, why? Because they're evil, supernatural beings behind these philosophies. Then he gives us a theology of the truth in 9 through 15. Talks about Jesus being fully God and fully man, that he's the head. When he uses the term all rule and authority, he's not talking about natural. He's talking supernatural. That's language of rule and authority, divine evil beings that have been given rule and authority in this world, says that Jesus has crushed them. He uses that terminology twice here. Now, here's something you may not know. This is interesting language right here. When he says this in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and his powerful work and God raised him from the dead. In the ancient Near East, the way they processed it was the dead is where they wanted to be. You see, so for the Kemetic religions, they wanted to be with Osiris in the realm of the dead. That was what they wanted to do. That was the whole point of living was to die and be among the realm of the dead. That's where they would go. They wanted to be with these particular deities in the realm of the dead. But he, Paul says, in God, you were actually dead on earth, and now you're going to be in the realm of the living. So this is not just a philosophical crazy statement. He is directly targeting the religious philosophies of those other people that make them think the realm of the dead is where you want to go. He says, man, you were brought to life from the dead. You were already dead. The realm of the dead for you is to be apart from God. But since Jesus died and rose and you believe in him, that means you rise to life. This is why it's called eternal life, not eternal death. These other religions, they, they want to be in the dead. Jesus said, I'm the God of the living, not the dead. He said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Them dudes are still alive. Paul's really targeting these folks. They would have known this. For us, it's clunky language like that. What does he mean by that? I don't know. I'm just going to read over it. I just, <laughs> I have my quiet time today. <laughs> what did you read today? Like in Colossians 2, and what did it say? Something about philosophy and stuff like that, and like dead and stuff. And I just know, it, for us, it's that. But the Jews hearing this, they're like, oh, yeah, he's right. Yeah, because they have more knowledge than we do. They have access to things that we don't. Their worldview is different. He's saying in Jesus, we were dead on earth, but before Jesus, we were dead on earth, but now we've been made alive in him. What's interesting, as I said this earlier, none of these gods and their religions have real death in real time. It's not a historical event. It's sort of a mystic understanding of why things are the way they are, not a historical person who, who specifically said in the 13th year of, they wanted to make sure you could track this as true in the reign of King Herod. Okay, we can go back in human history and find out when Herod was alive and what he was doing and be like, oh, wow, that was such and such A.D. God wanted you to know, now this is no mythology. Let me bring you into real human history. So when I write the narrative, when I give my version of the story, I'm going to give you specific names and people that you can relate it to. 
I have no idea what, what, who, how Zeus swallowed a heart and then gave birth. Man, get out of here. When did that happen? What year was that? What was, who was king of the earth then? Who was, the Bible is clear, like, and this was happening here. Here are the names of these people. Luke, writing to Theophilus. We can go back and think, who was that? Oh. God says, when I tell this story, I'm going to tell it in real time. That's the difference between mythology and biblical reality. They got names and dates and who was in charge so you can go back in human history and get a sense of, oh, this is why this dude could do that. He could cast spells from this book and give it to Harry Potter. No. He had names and dates and he could trace this and be like, oh, okay, then this would have happened then. So if, this, if he lived, if Noah lived nine, you know, Adam lived 960 years and this would have been around this time and then these people, you can do that. The Bible makes it clear this is when it happened. You can say what you want about all these other people, but it's in human history. And then when he gets down to the theology of their lives, he talks about, look, these are festivals. These things are, they have no value eternally speaking. In verse 16, it's a diesel. So then no one pass judgment on you over this stuff. If you don't go to these things, they have no value. They have value to them, the elemental spirits of the world. They don't have value to you. He says these things are a shadow. They're a replica of things to come, but they're not, they're not Christ. They're not connected to Christ. Yes, there were festivals that Jesus and them had. There were things like that. Sabbath was important on some level. They ultimately need to connect to Christ. He talks about in 18, not letting people disqualify you. You know what's interesting? This word aestheticism, you know what that word means? It means humility. In almost every passage in the New Testament, except for here, it's translated humility. So he said, let no one disqualify you insisting on humility and worship of angels going on in details about vision. Why would he say, let no one disqualify you about pursuing humility, insisting on humility? That's, a, that's what we're supposed to be about, right? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. What is Paul talking about? We shouldn't insist on humility? Well, look what he connects it to. Insisting on humility and worship of angels going on in details about visions puffed up by, without reason by a sensuous mind. Paul is saying, let no one insist on you being so humble that you believe all this stuff. Don't be so humble that you believe in worship of angels and people who give authority to visions that they can't really prove or from God. That's what he's saying. Don't let anyone insist on you being humble enough to believe all of it because none of it is from God. That's what he's saying. You got to be careful here. Here's what not to believe. So taking all that into account, when the writers of Scripture, inspired by the Spirit, wrote Scripture, what did they write? Why did the Spirit inspire them to write Scripture? And if the Bible is not the original story of creation and continuation, then what is it? How should we understand the Bible in light of these other narratives that came before it, that God allowed 751 years before he even had his story written down while the other religions, other evil deities had a head start. What then is the Bible? Three letters, C-C-R. 
So the Bible is a word of God, but from a supernatural storyline, here's what the Bible is. It is a competitive clarification of reality. God is competing with the evil cosmic powers that have crafted all these narratives and stories. And he's clarifying the truth. He's clarifying reality. He doesn't care if they go first. As a matter of fact, I think because he's the Alpha and Omega, it's like, y'all got a 750-year head start. He didn't stop them from creating narratives that affect the world, but those narratives don't have impact. They're all dead. He said, when I give my narrative, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do what y'all can't do. So I'm going to let you have your head start. Go ahead. But then when I clarify, it's going to change the world. Jesus is the most polarizing figure in the world. No one takes Osiris or Zeus and stuff seriously. Especially if you watch Thor 4, you can't take Zeus seriously yeah. after that. That's a little pet peeve of mine. We'll talk about that another time. God didn't stop the cosmic powers of darkness from getting their versions of the truth out first. He just said, when I put my version out, it's going to be change the world. The Bible is not addressing who told the first story. It's addressing who told the story right. So, of course, these other religions said stuff that the Bible said it had similarities because these evil cosmic beings were around at the beginning of creation. They watched all of it happen. And then when they were given authority over people, they created narratives to rival Yahweh's narrative because in their minds, they have no idea when Genesis 3.15 is going to happen and whoever that he is. So we're going to kill kids. We're going to do all these things, make you sacrifice the babies. We're going to make you worship all these other beings, all this stuff, because at some point, the truth is going to come out. This is why the demons, when they see Jesus, they address him as who he is. Gee, we know who you are, son of the most high God. They're saying, we know you are the definition of truth. Have you come to destroy us? They know what's going on. Their job was to create these narratives. And God said, go ahead. Do your thing. But then I'm going to come in and show the people how what you're doing is nothing compared to who I am. I'm going to take what you said is about your God and show them how, no, that's about me. Let me prove this point. There's many narratives I could choose from. Wait till we get to the cross. Wait till we get to the crucifixion when Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? Right? Now, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22. To us, he's quoting a sentence. But to the ancient Near East Jew, whenever they quote a psalm, it's referring and referencing all of the information in the psalm. So they didn't see it as one, a couple words. They saw it as the whole psalm. So when Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Wait till we get to that point when he gets to verse 12 in Psalm 22. That's the psalm he's referring to when he says this. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Wait till we get to that and we realize that the bulls were the way that the other ancient Near Eastern religions understood how creation came. And that when he's targeting and talking about the bulls, he's talking about these other ancient religions. This is why there was bulls that were sacrificed all through the Old Testament, because God has been systematically telling them that. Wait till we get there. 
the bulls of Bashan. Bashan is Caesarea Philippi in the New Testament where Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail. And where he went to Mount Hermon and transfigured in front of him, that's the region of Bashan. Wait till we see that these statements are really statements against the cosmic powers of darkness. This is what the Bible is. These competing, dare I say crushing, by clarifying reality. Here's a quick illustration that I said. I've said this before. Let's just do it again. Paul's in Areopagus. And I'm going to close with this. Here's what he says. Now, this is Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked with him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who worship, who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities, foreign divinities. Very important statement. So if the Jews are borrowing from all the other religions, then why is what Paul's saying to them foreign? Maybe I'm dumb, but they're listening to him like, what is he talking about? We don't even understand what he's saying. He's talking about some foreign event. Oh, but if he's borrowing from all their religions, then it should have made sense. Oh, this is the same story we heard about Osiris and all this other stuff. They're like, what is he talking about? Because they've never heard this before. They didn't borrow from anyone. They're clarifying reality. Listen to, what, listen to what he continues to say. They said, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They never heard this before. This is nothing like the other. These people knew what was going on. This was their entertainment of the day. This was their social media. This was their, this was their Twitter and Facebook. So Paul came up with a Facebook post, and here's what he said. Here's what he said, beginning in verse 23. For Beginning in verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you in every way are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, or live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries in their, dwelling, in their dwelling place. So he's telling them, look, the gods that you were, let me tell you, this is the God that has done all the things that you all are going back and forth about. Then he says this. In verse 25, he says this. Actually, just back up to 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though we needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. What a crazy statement in light of people who say that unbelievers don't look for God. It's a different conversation. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Now he's quoting from Epimenides, an Epicurean philosopher. And this term, in him we move and have our being, I said before, we're his offspring. We are indeed his offspring. They're, they're talking about Zeus. 
talking about Zeus. So he's quoting philosophers from other religions and saying, for even your poets have said, for we, we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine being is not like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people to repent. Look at this smooth transition that Paul said. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. And that's a quote from Epimenides. That's not talking about God of the Bible or Christianity. Then he said, as even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring, talking about Zeus. And then he says in verse 29, being then God's offspring, <laughs> he need just smoothed it right over. And I told you this before, but Paul is basically saying here, which you identify as Zeus, is really about Hazel. You think this is about your God? No, this is actually describing my God. Let me explain to you that what you've understood from your God is really about my God. Let me clarify reality for you so that you can believe because there is a day he's appointing when people will be judged. He's not saying the stories of your God are competing with my God. He's saying the stories of your God are actually about my God. And I'm here to clarify. This Alpha and Omega vibes. This is Paul saying, I'm outside. My God is outside. And let me just tell you about him. The Bible, supernaturally speaking, is God competing with and clarifying reality. He gave them a 700 and 50 head start years before he even started anything. And then a 4,000 year head start before he started addressing all people and not just the Jews. Many of these other religions don't even exist now. They're stories of stuff that you watch on the History Channel. But the God of the Bible, we preach, sing to, and fellowship in every day. Right now, there are millions of sermons going on around the world. Gazillion books have been written about Jesus. I'm, I could be wrong, but I'm sure there's not millions of people worshiping Osiris right now. Exactly. Proves that. The Bible is the word of God, but God is clarifying, competing with the other religious stories. So did they borrow from them? Yes, in the sense to clarify reality. No, in a sense to create a false religion that imitates or one-ups them. They don't need to because they know that these gods are weak compared to the most high God. They don't need to copy them. They're like, we serve the God that they serve. They used to say in my old church, the devil is still God's devil. He needs permission. Yahweh, Jesus, doesn't need permission. But he does need submission. And that's what our lives are about. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you know, there's a lot about the Bible that we just didn't process. And it's not 
for any wrongdoing. We just didn't have access to a lot of the worldview, a lot of the divine counsel, a lot of the, there are things that we clearly believe and by your grace, we thank you for those things. But there's a lot that we just don't get, understand and we just pass over. We don't see the significance of names and places. We don't realize that you've mentioned over 200 separate cosmic evil beings in the Bible and we just pass over them. We think those are locations just by themselves, but you're talking about something totally different. Lord, I thank you that you've helping us or helping us grow in seeing this so that we can just love our Bibles more. Lord, I pray that you would give a resurgence in our church of love for the Bible and, and, and even love for the Old Testament. As we start in two weeks going through, that we're able to see things, not in some drawing attention to me or in some just making stuff up, but just really seeing what does this really mean? What's the significance of this? Everything is done in light of a supernatural context. For the world that we don't see was created before the world that we do see. So in terms of comparison, where you are is more real than where we are. And so what we don't see is more real than what we do see in the grand scheme of truth. So Father, I pray that you would help us to continue to grow and process that, and that we would have much more respect for this thing that we carry around with us in our apps and on the multiple versions of it. Some people would die to just have a page of it. May we grow in a conviction to read the Bible, not just because we're trying to figure out what do we relate to, but because there is a much deeper reality going on in the pages that we sometimes just take for granted on whether we'll read or not. So I pray that you would do all this by your spirit, for your glory and for our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we have a few. Thank you for that message, sir. Um, no, that was the Lord. That was for him. That was the Lord. No, I hate when people do that. When you try to, people you try to encourage you, like, no, that's not about me. That's for him. It's like, I know, man. I'm not saying you the Lord. This occurs one another daily, bro. I used to hate when people do that. I stopped encouraging people for like three and a half years. Y'all heard that? No encouraging this, brother? No. Just um, so obviously there are uh, a few questions. Yep. Um, in light of uh, what you and how you describe what the Bible is, how should we process portions of the Bible like Genesis? Should we process it literally or should we process it from a story-like perspective? You know what's funny? I'll, this may sound weird, but I think you should process those stories as truth. I don't think we, I think we get into, is it literal? Is it historical? It's truth. God didn't say this, there, there's dip. So the reason why I'm saying it's truth over, because you can, there can be truth in a poem. There can be truth in like Revelation, right? Let's look at Revelation. Apocalyptic literature, right? It's, it's, it's not stuff that, it, when it talks about a dragon, it doesn't mean, it's, it's not talking about Game of Thrones, right? Where you're going to see a dragon show up. No, it's, it's using imagery to refer to something that's true. So the Bible, people get into, is it literal? Is it historical? Is it this? Is it that matters? It's, it's truth. It's God chose varying degrees in which he would communicate truth. So sometimes poetically, you know, some people think Genesis 1 and 2, it's, po it's poetry. In the Hebrew, it reads like poetry. 
There's wisdom literature in Proverbs, and Proverbs are true. I mean, so it's not like, is it literal? It's, I see the Bible, we should see the Bible as truth, a clarifying reality of what the world is really about, who created the world, and so forth. And as we go through the supernatural storyline, we'll see in greater detail why and how this all happened and what God is doing. So I think I, literal, there are times it is literal. There are times it is historical. But I think it's just about truth. Thank you. Um, this question, we've talked about this uh, a little bit, but um, how should we process the idea of biblical inerrancy? So, biblical inerrancy, right? So here's the problem. So biblical inerrancy is basically the Bible doesn't have any errors, right? And, and one of the pushbacks by many people in this day and age is that the Bible does have errors in it, and they'll try to highlight these errors. It said this in this, in this gospel story. It said there were five people, but then this one it says two and all of that. How do you process that? It's the same answer that I would give. It's truth. The Bible being the word of God, God, did, God didn't work outside of humanity to describe the Bible and to display it. So if you go back to, we'll see this in the storyline, but when you go to Exodus, right? Remember Moses comes down the mountain in Exodus 32 and sees what Israel's doing and he destroys the tablets, right? So in Exodus 34, God said to Moses, you're going to write on them tablets at this time. Since you destroyed them, you're going to chisel it out, right? But then God says later on, I'm going to write it instead. He says, I'm going to write it. But then it says at the end, Moses wrote it, wrote it, right? But God saw that as the word of God. He inspired men to write the word of God. So God did not see his writing of the word without human component. When there's a human component, there's going to be some measure of error. You got people who were writing word for word translating what the Bible says. That's, that's, a, that's hard work. Ask anyone. I mean, we've, we've done a, we're doing another joint service with the, a Latino church in November, and, and Banjo, who has done some translation, there are people here who speak Spanish and English, my wife included, and one time when, when Banjo was doing it, she was like, wow, that's really hard what he's doing. Because it's hard to know, like, sometimes words don't translate. So, like, you can be like, oh, man, how, what word is that? And I'll be like, what are you trying to say? Like, well, and she'll say, and then, I was like, that doesn't help me. I still don't know what that means. But it's like, it's a phrase. It's a, but for her, it's like, I know what this means, but I can't put it, say it in English. It's hard to translate. So here, here's a guy, and they said he was killing it. Like, Benjamin was just up here, yeah, and so the Lord said this, and then, yeah, and then this and that. Had the jokes and everything down. The spirit was with Banjo that day, right? So it was Pentecost in this joint, just for Banjo. It was his personal Pentecost, right? But, so imagine that you're trying to translate. It can be difficult. And you do, and then you have, hey, they're, they're, these are in the original manuscripts, right? So I don't think of the Bible as, because here's the argument, they're inerrant in the original manuscripts. Okay, but guess what? I don't have the original manuscripts. I'm not carrying a copy of them. Many of us have to go to a library in Israel to see them, and then we can't read them, <laughs> right? So when I think of the Bible and its inerrancy, I think it's a dumb argument. I think the Bible is truth. And I think there are transcribal errors, and I'm fine with that. I do not think because it's the word of God that there should be absolutely nothing. Not, I, don't, I don't, I mean, English language changes. The King James 
they, they talk way different than we did. You know, for all them all King James only people, they must watch a lot of a lot, a lot of Pride and Prejudice because I don't understand what they people be saying a lot. I don't get what they talk about at all the way they talk. So my point is like the idea of inerrancy, I think is at one level, I think it's a way to make you have to decide whether the Bible is the truth that the guy gave us. It's the truth that God gave us. I don't care if you believe it's an error or not. And if you can say there's some discrepancies there, what discrepancy? Listen, here's what the Bible said. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. So if you can prove to me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's all that matters to me. If you tell me, well, look what it says in 2 Kings here. It says 30,000, but then 13. What do you say about that? Jesus rose from the dead, fam. If you can prove to me he didn't rise from the dead, then let's talk. Until you say that, I don't care what discrepancies you show up with because you accept discrepancies in many other texts and don't say nothing about them. You just don't want to believe the Bible and you just mad that I do. And that's it. That's it. Would it be wise as Christians to read uh, books uh, the books that we do not uh, have easy access to, such as the Catholic Bible, to better understand the supernatural storyline of the Bible? Would it be wise? I don't think so. I don't think it's about wisdom. I think it could be helpful. It could be helpful, but I think it depends on... So to be honest with you, I think a lot of this type of stuff depends on your maturity. There are some people that are more... They're just not as theologically sound. So they might get affected the wrong way by reading something. I think maturity matters here. And so I wouldn't tell someone, based on where they're at, hey, you should read this, check this out. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't even tell someone to listen to competing worldviews because you might get swayed. Thank you, brother. You might get swayed. But if you're mature enough, yeah, you can read that stuff. I read that stuff. And I'm not like, saying, oh, my gosh. Why would, this stuff, why, what, if, what if this is true? What if that, man, I'm... Whatever demon is knocking down water bottles in the presence. You're getting real charismatic in this joint. Whatever demon is in here plucking water bottles off, I will not be moved. <laughs> Casting it out, huh? The demon of bottle plucking. So, the demon of non-recycling. He just is all loitering. The demon of loitering, right? Is it? I, I just, I, I, I just think. Uh, I forgot what the question is, man. I'm gone. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm over here thinking about demons plucking water and all that stuff. So hopefully I, whatever I said was helpful. Let's keep going. If not, get to me afterwards. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm, I'm like this because I see a lot of believers swayed in ways mm -hmm. that they just don't need to be. The Bible is truth. Like it's just like you believe stuff that's true that has no authority over your life. You believe stuff that's true all the time that has no eternal value. Like, why would you question that the Bible's true when there are other things that you look at manuals and think that those are true? And you know what I'm saying? You read a manual and think like, man, I, you know, sometimes you get like, wait a minute, this is the wrong thing. Anybody got a manual and be like, wait a minute, this, there's no way you can do this. This is why I go to Ikea. Ikea makes me feel like I could have been an engineer. It's like, okay, turn this on. You're just like, man, I do this for the rest of my life. But this stuff, like, this doesn't make sense to me, is it? We believe stuff that's true that has nothing to do with our eternal salvation. I'm not going to doubt the thing that the only thing that tells me that because some people think like, oh, look at this, oh, look at that. But what's the alternative, what you believe? Is that the alternative, like to follow what you, I mean, even the people that say, well, the Bible, there's a, there's a popular, semi-popular Christian, former Christian rapper now, 
a fanatic against the Bible, right? He wrote a book called uh, Let There Be Gaslight, right? So he's, this is a guy who people respected for defending the Bible is now going against it. And one of his arguments in the early chapters is, well, it borrowed from other religions and because it wasn't. So, okay, if you, so are you saying then that whoever presented the story first is true? Then if that's the case, then why don't you follow the Mesopotamian religion? You're not saying, if you're just saying the Bible was, but you're not saying if, you're, if it was first is true, then why don't you worship that God? Because you don't want to. Because you don't really believe that logic. You don't believe that. You don't believe that at all. So that type, that's why I'm like this, because I just think a lot of, in this day and age, I think Christians are more moved by things you can easily access on the internet, as if like the most solid writing is online. Oh, look at this documentary, Zeitgeist. Look, it points out all this stuff, man. A wash. They present stuff knowing that that stuff has been debunked a long time ago, but many of us don't know it. So we look at it and think like, man, that's a couple million views, you know, tens of thousands of comments. Man, this must be wrong. <laughs> Jesus said, look, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that lead to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road of life, and only a few find it. So if you see everyone moving in that direction, that's probably the broad road leading to destruction. But I've never seen an overwhelming majority of people be like, Jesus, unless they're using it as a profanity. <laughs> Only when they don't say Buddha, <laughs> Muhammad, man. They never say that, right? I've never heard nobody say that. Oh, Cyrus. <laughs> never heard nobody say that. I just, I'm just not going for it. You can fool a few people, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm gonna, I'd rather stand in front of God and he say, you was wrong on this, than stand in front of you when you say you was wrong on this. And that's just where I'm at. I'm that stubborn. I'm that stubborn. I ain't listening to you, fam. Well, you started off the sermon delineating a, a timeline when certain events of the Bible mm -hmm. occurred, uh, ending with creation. Yeah. Um, beginning with creation. Be, thank you. Yeah, beginning with creation. Excuse me. Um, does it matter if a believer thinks creation started 4,000 years ago versus millions of years ago? So young earth, old earth? Basically. Does it matter? So let me ask a question. I'm going to answer your question with a question. Is your salvation contingent upon your view of when the earth was created? If it doesn't, it's fun to talk about. You got people that are arguing over young earth, old earth. This guy could be right, could be wrong, but guess what? Jesus rose from the dead, fam. And so I don't care if there were dinosaurs or not. I don't care if we were cavemen or not. Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, I have a secure eternal foundation. All that other stuff, let's just be clear. No one. And I mean, no one really knows. You won't find out until you die, and no one's coming back from the dead like, hey, it was, it was actually 8,000 years ago. Let me tell y'all real quick. Before, nobody knows. We don't know. All, these steel, all this stuff, man, it's just like, fam, like, get a Facebook account or something. Like, this. it's just all these people arguing and trying to shame you and 
Oh, if you're a literal seven, uh, six days of creation versus this and that, that's just poetry. The word, the Greek word, the Hebrew word for day is yom, and that could mean a, a long period of time or one day. So if you're, man, I don't care about that. Jesus never said, look, if you are, if you are to be saved, you must believe that, that this, man, I don't care about that. I care about what, who he is, what he did, and what he says about me. And that's what guides me. The other stuff is interesting. I enjoy the rhetoric, but I, but I, and, I can, and I can mix it in with the best of them. But I don't really care. But when it comes down to it, I don't get into those conversations because I'm trying to prove a point. I just, I don't, I, I enjoy people trying to prove a point and it makes me laugh. It's like, it's like at weddings watching people dance. I know this is funny. I love it. I know this is the only time you've danced all year in a couple of years. That's what I love about going to Christian weddings. People be, I like, I want to see the cuffet challenge at a Christian wedding. People be all messed up, rhythm off, because you don't dance. It's fun. It's the same thing with me in these conversations. I enjoy them. They're fun. But in the grand scheme of eternity, they mean nothing. They don't change anything about your salvation. So if you believe that the Bible, the world is millions of years old, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he wrote for the, cool, I can fellowship with you. Do you believe the Bible was, if the world is 6,000 years old? Because some psalm says you created the world with age. Cool. All right. Uh, when Cain is cast out, he's afraid whoever finds him will kill him, mm -hmm. implying that there were already people around. Yeah. Is it possible that when it says that they begin to call on the name of the Lord, that there actually were other religions already in existence? It's possible. It's possible. But the Bible, so the Bible narrative obviously isn't going to cover everything that's happened, right? There are definitely other kids that Adam and Eve have, but they zone in on these people because they're important to the storyline of what God is doing. So is it possible that there were other religions? It's possible. We don't know. But the fact that they were, but my point wasn't that there were, no, there were no other religions that we know of is what I said. But the point is that God could have recorded started having them write back then what it means to follow him, and he didn't. He waited 700 and, well, at that time, from 2,500 years, from Genesis 3.15 to Exodus 20. That's 2,500 years in human history that God didn't say anything and let all these other stories get crafted. So is it possible it could have? Yeah, sure. But the point is, is that God didn't weigh in for way too long, and he did it intentionally because he's Alpha and Omega. He's like, man, y'all can go ahead, y'all go first. Let's see who has a more impact in the world. Let's see who changes the world. Um, could, um, the question is, uh, could an elemental spirit mentioned in Colossians 2 be a God <laughs> under Satan? <laughs> My bad, I'm sorry, but I was trying to grab it. <laughs> I tried to be smooth with too many people. We're like, no, it became like a game. Like I was bobbing for apples. Like, say that again. Could an elemental spirit? Uh, the elemental spirit uh, mentioned in Colossians two be a god under Satan? A god under Satan. So, I think what we'll see in the storyline of the Bible is any usually spirits when they're mentioned are usually evil spirits. When it says God is spirit, well, okay, it's obviously talking about God, but when angels appear, they're not, they're not spirits. 
when it describes like cherubim, if it describes those beings in the presence of God, then you know they're, they're good gods. When it describes like elemental spirits, his point is these are basic spirits. So elemental, elementary, right? Sort of the same derivative. Basic spirits that teach you principles of the world that have nothing to do with Christ. So are they under Satan? 100%. I think every spirit that we probably, most of the spirits that we'll encounter in the Bible are cosmic powers of darkness. And then you'll see like angel, usually that's God's side, angel of the Lord, the angel, of, you know, you'll see that, that's how it works. So yeah, I definitely think so. So when approaching uh, conversations about religion, with the information that we've heard today, um, what attitude should we have when speaking about other people's gods uh, being less than ours, than our God? In boldness, that is one option, or carefully with love. So I don't think those two are mutually exclusive. Thank you. And I think it depends on the context to me. Like, so let me give you an example, right? So from the Acts, from the book of Acts, right? You got Acts chapter two and three. So here is Peter preaching the gospel, right? Acts two, using the book of Joel. And then says to the people, now remember, in Acts two, these were Jews that came from all over. Some of them came from far. They were in Egypt, they were in Alexandria. They, were, they might not have even heard of Jesus, or if they did, they weren't around for all that stuff. They don't have the money to be coming all the way to Jerusalem. That's why it was an annual event. So when they show up, these people are hearing Peter say, you killed him. Says, so look at Acts 2. Peter was, you killed him. You killed him. And it was like, we, what are we? But they said they were cut to the heart. What must we do? And they said, you got to believe in him. You know, Acts 3, similar language. Peter says, Acts 3, 26. But God sent Jesus to you first, you Jews, to bless you by turning you away from your wickedness. Right? Then you get to Acts 7, Stephen. Stephen gives a biblical story, right? Biblical theology. Let's start from Adam and work our way on up. And then the process, I'm going to call you stiff-necked people. They killed him, right? You get Acts 8, Philip gets brought by the Holy Spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading Isaiah 53. And he just says, hey, who is this talking about? I think I, the first question I would have asked is, where did you come from? I was just here by myself. You just showed up. But he said, who are you, who's he talking about? He breaks down the gospel from Isaiah 53, right? You get... Acts 17, Paul, philosophical gospel. Paul doesn't even mention Jesus and none of that stuff. Doesn't even say it real from it, just philosophical gospel. Let me address you on your terms. Acts 26 in front of King Felix. Let me share my testimony. You know me. I was one who was this and that, and then the Lord, the Holy. I'm saying that to say, look, there are variations in which you present truth. And in Acts, they did it according to the context that they were around. So when you're talking to someone who's maybe in your face and challenging you, I think, yeah, you want to be bold. Like, no, but you don't have to be bold. Like, there's no such things as jerks for Jesus, right? right. So that's just not true. Right. Even though some people should have that bumper sticker. There's no such <laughs> thing as that, right? But boldness isn't being, I mean, Paul was bold too. Jesus was bold. There was boldness, so I don't think they mutually are either boldness or compassionate. But I think if you're going to choose one or the other, 
lean more towards compassion. Because 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 26, particularly 26 says, and God may grant them. He said, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, right? Why? Because God may grant them repentance because they have been taken captive to do the devil's will. So these people that are boldly disagreeing with you, their biggest problem is not their tone and what they're saying, is that they've been taken captive to do the devil's will and they don't even know it. But since we do, we need to be patient and gracious. So if you're going to, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I think I would lean on, it, on compassion and stuff like that. For those of you, please, please thank those in children's ministry because we're running late and they're with your kids. And they, your kids don't listen to them the way they listen to you. So just please know when you go in there, thank them. Because we're about to wrap up right now. This last question, if there's another one. Thank them, please, because they're serving to make sure that you all get to listen without obstruction. But they've been obstructed all afternoon, all morning, right, by your kids. So make sure you say thank you, thank you, thank you. I got a gift card for you, something, because that's not easy work. All right, last one. If, if there's more, just get to me, or I'll look at them later. Um, are there any current examples from your perspective of, of God clarifying reality, like right now, currently? God clarifying reality, I think, I think there's a ton of them, but I, I'll say, I think the explosion of Christianity in Iran, in China, and in places where if you believe in Jesus there, like your life is in immediate jeopardy. When I was in India, I'll never forget the most powerful thing I've ever seen in my life was we went to the Bay of, I think it was the Bay of Bengal. It was a body, a big body of water right there in Southeast India. And there were all these women who were there because they believed in Jesus. And they all had these red powder dots on their head. And they understood that when you go underneath the water and come up, it's going to wash that dot off. And that dot to them represented worship of the Hindu gods and Shiva the destroyer and stuff like that. So they were saying, when we go down, we're not putting that red dot back up. But they all, many of them had husbands who they knew were going to be physically abusive and may lose their lives because they took that dot off. And I watched a ton of them line up and watch Yeshu Potom baptize them. And I couldn't believe it. And they came out the water with such joy, knowing that they're about to experience maybe the end of their lives. And they said, we believe it. That's real. That's why I'm not worried about fighting over politics over here. There's more at stake. So to me, that was the most powerful thing I've ever seen because I knew, they knew what that meant. So is it, yeah, God is, there's an explosion. We don't hear about this stuff, but follow like Voice of the Martyrs and different explosion of Christianity. In America, it's eroding. But other places, God is real to them folks. So yeah, I think stuff like that. But that all depends on how you process salvation. If salvation to you is like not, it says heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. So if you don't process people getting saved like as something that's really a big deal, then that's not going to matter to you. But if you do, you realize like, wow, this is a powerful thing. People, we, people here reject Christ because of what they'll have to give up. Over there, they accept Christ willing to give up even their own lives. It's crazy. Having said that, 
Many of us, whether we've been, whether it was consequential for us or not, have experienced and have accepted 